All right, and we are back today with another interview. We are going to be talking to a uh, longtime friend of mine from college, actually, uh, Jared, who I like to call J-Bo, and everybody used to call J-Bo back in the day. Uh, he's a really cool guy, and he's got a lot of cool stuff to talk about today. Um, it's going to be sort of a, uh, a heavier uh, topic today. We're going to be talking about domestic violence and uh, about human and sex uh, trafficking. So some of the topics may be uh, a little heavy for some people, so there is that content warning uh, just in case uh, this may be something that triggers something inside of you. Uh, so right now, Jared, thank you for joining me. Uh, you, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are, where you're from, that sort of thing? Yeah, man. Uh, J-Bo is the throwback. Nobody knows me by that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I am um, from kind of a small town. Well, I'm from a small town in the Quad City area, um, which I guess correct or fill in any of my assumed knowledge on the Midwestern stuff. Cause you're in a whole other part of the country now. Um, but I'm from the Quad city area, which is kind of the border between Iowa and Illinois essentially. Yeah. Um, and really where I met you and all of that goes back to the fact that I went to college at Western Illinois university. Um, super involved with campus students for Christ, just like you. So where I met my wife, that's where I met you and a bunch of other friends. Um, before, I eventually transferred to Nashville, Tennessee, and I, at the time, uh, very much felt like God was pushing me in that direction, and I went and pursued finishing a music business degree at Belmont University and worked in the industry for a little while, um, primor primarily doing uh, kind of copyright and songwriter rights, performance rights type stuff um, for a few years before... We packed it up and moved back to Illinois. So it's really been all ministry and social service since that point. Yeah, absolutely. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but your your current vocation, you are like a domestic, uh, like a domestic abuse counselor. Is that correct? Uh, so what I am um, is I am a supervisor for our domestic violence program. I'm the client services coordinator. And so I oversee um, the emergency shelter, um, you know, a handful of staff, volunteers, and just a lot that has to do with our domestic violence program. Um, but as of late, I guess where I've been spreading is probably the amount of um, community collaborative work I've been doing and state collaborative work that I've been doing. So I guess on top of uh, doing the work at the domestic violence program, um, which again is in, I, I guess I didn't say where, where we went back to in Illinois. Um, we are in Decatur in basically central Illinois, right in the heart of it next to Springfield. Right. And, um, so I guess the other stuff that I've branched out into is the fact that I am a certified domestic violence professional and a contracted, uh, domestic violence trainer as well. So twice a year I do this 44 hour, um, co-trained this 44 hour domestic violence certification training. Um, and kind of from there on, I, so now I am, uh, involved with the Illinois, uh, coalition against domestic violence, where I co-chair the leadership development committee. Um, in the last year plus, um, I started doing work with the Illinois central Illinois human trafficking task force. Wow. And locally, I'm involved in some homeless collaboratives, um, family violence uh, collaboratives, um, 
I'm involved with the Set Free Movement, which is another anti-human trafficking uh, group that's local. So, yeah, just kind of feel like I got my feet in a lot of pools. Yeah, so... So if I could just rewind a little bit. So you at one point were in, in Nashville going after, uh, you know, music and music business. And I remember, I, I believe at one point you had even um, authored a book, uh, maybe with like uh, maybe some of your poetry or, or writings or, or, or whatever the case may be. So how did you make that jump from like the sort of more creative side of like, you know, writing and making music and doing music business to coming into this role? A hundred percent God. <laughs> That's how that works, right? Um, yep. Literally, uh, even my writing, like back in the day, I did a few books that were like self-published poetry, um, lyrical type stuff. Um, more recently, not that there's been a lot, but it's been more ministry focused and men's ministry focused. Mm-hmm. But sincerely, there was just a point in the road um, where... I think I was trying to decide what God wanted for me long-term and what, what I thought I'd be doing for the rest of my life. It was becoming clear that I wasn't sure it was going to be the music industry and hands down, there was a night, um, that God just said straight up, you're going back to Illinois, you're going to Decatur, um, (laughs) which you can appreciate. This was like, uh, you sure about that? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, cause it, <laughs> the cater of all places, right? <laughs> right. Cause it wasn't my hometown. It's not like that's a, it wasn't a vibrant booming place to go back to. Um, and, and it was literally like God speaking to me, just, just saying, you are going to go back, you're going to do ministry and you are going to, um, essentially serve the least of these. And in my head, I had this idea that I was going to be essentially, uh, serving people who were homeless, who were victims, who were whatever. And that was the message. And it was clear as day. And um, it was kind of a, a Nineveh moment, if you will, um, except that I didn't jump ship and try to run in the other direction. Um, we were just kind of all on board. Katie was thrilled to be going back to her hometown because sure. my wife's from Decatur. Um. But it was just a God thing. And then, you know, how it all worked out is a God thing as well, because I didn't come into it with a degree or education. I started building up a men's ministry within different churches over the years. But primarily what I was doing was social work. And so I started with a small homeless women's homeless shelter. I'd spent a couple years as a counselor at, um, a teen residential facility, um, working with essentially, um, children who were kind of punitively, um, dealing with the child protection services in Illinois. So DCFS here, Mm -hmm. um, wound up landing a job with dove, which is where I'm at today is dove Inc. Um, but I was in their homeless services, uh, department or wing, which is called homeward bound and did homeless services for a few years before, I guess, kind of ironically in that process, I had become domestic violence trained because, um, I guess the agency philosophy was you're going to be working with those survivors. We want to make sure that everybody's ready and doing the right thing. And so I had gotten trained before I ever even left that program 
and had done some volunteering in the shelter, which was almost controversial at the time because domestic violence is thought of as being women's services Mm -hmm. and men aren't really involved at any high capacity at all. And so there was, um, you know, there was some testing of the waters even with me doing shelter work. Wow. Um, and out of the clear blue, I was in a position where I was, uh, looking for another job, um, from where I was at, which wasn't Dove. And this position opened up and it was a supervisory role as a domestic violence shelter. And ironically, I was trying to get my wife to do it. Um, she had recently stopped being a police officer and, and was looking for a change as well. And I thought, Oh, you'd be great at that. And one day, I think God had like kind of been working on my heart, but one day my wife looks at me, she goes, I don't understand why you're not applying for it. And I'm sure it was because, you know, I was a male and I played to all of the, I don't know, stereotypes. And, and one day, um, it just got in my head like, oh yeah, maybe God would want me to do that. And the doors swung open. I mean, hundred percent God, I, there is no way for me to be doing what I'm doing today both from when I entered the domestic violence program to all of the things that I kind of talked about that I'm involved in. Every one of those is an open door from God that I did not open. And I don't think I could have opened if I wanted to. Well, that's, that's, that's awesome. I'm like, I I love hearing stories like that. Um, Just how, how God opens the doors and uh, takes you down paths that you like, literally you would never imagine going down. And uh, I was actually just talking similarly to, uh, my, my pastor today on the phone and uh, we was just mentioning how my wife and I, you know, we were doing foster care and out of doing foster care, uh, we've been able, we've been introduced to like our, our foster daughter's friends. And out of that, we've been started helping these friends. And I was like, I was like, you know, like on my own, just like as, as a, you know, white 30 something year old guy, I have no reason to be talking to like Hispanic teenagers, but here <laughs> I, but here I am now, like, helping them out. And it's just like, this is God working 100% through us to, to, to do his, his will in, in people's lives. And it's, it just, it's humbling to, to sit back and realize that like, yeah, God does use you and opens these doors up to use you in these places. And uh, so it's great. I'm glad, I'm glad that you've been able to see that um, God is the one that has brought you to, to where you are now. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So if we can like, just maybe shift a little bit. So what, just for the listeners out there, what I, uh, hope that we can do with this time with 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 Jared, um, with his experience and 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 what he's done in the last few years, um, is kind of shed some light and maybe tackle some uh, maybe misconceptions uh, about these topics. So, Jared, one of my first questions I would have to ask you then, like, what does domestic abuse look like? Like, is it just like all physical violence, or is there something like more emotional and psychological? Could you explain like, you know, what you would say domestic abuse looks like? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's all those things plus some, um, and ironically, so when I teach this both to the public or if I'm, I'm doing a class with survivors, which I do defining domestic violence is myth breaking because the myth is just that, like mm. it's only physical violence. It's only if you get punched in the mouth or this or that. And so we have these stereotypes, um, 
but it's also kind of defined by your local or state domestic violence acts. Um, and Illinois has a very strong one. So when I talk about it, um, it's kind of in that context of how does the state and courthouses and government recognize it as a protection. Okay. Um, but saying that I teach from essentially six types or categories, subcategories, if you will, of domestic violence. And that is obviously physical abuse, which is what everybody thinks of. Mm -hmm. Um, Emotional, psychological abuse, you kind of lump into one. um, And you can imagine how deep and broad that pool is. Um, So anything related to manipulation, um, gaslighting, breaking somebody's uh, self-esteem down, yelling at them, calling them names like, the the list is kind of endless when it comes to that particular category. Um, then you get into talking about um, sexual abuse mm-hmm. and the fact that sexual abuse exists uh, in intimate relationships. It absolutely does. And it comes in different forms and breaking the myth that spouses can't be sexually assaulted. Um, this super old school goes back to like England um, idea that uh spouses can't rape their i mean specifically husbands can't rape their wives because it's like their marital duty so getting into the topic of sexual abuse in intimate relationships um and then there's like these lesser known categories that we go into dealing with financial abuse uh social abuse which includes um both abusing somebody in a public setting or on the flip side, doing things that harm their social standing or reputation. And then kind of lumping into that, there's also all of the isolation tactics that are commonly used. And then the sixth one we kind of delve into is um, kind of an aggravated one, if you will, in that we talk about religious and spiritual abuse and how it's always in those other five categories, but you're adding in the depth and uh, intensity that bringing in somebody's faith belief um, gets into. So we kind of start with these, you know, these six subtypes, if you will, um, and always bring back um, to the forefront this idea. You think about domestic violence is that no matter what tactic is being used and all of those are like tactics it's um, that everything at the end of the day is really just about power and control. Mm-hmm. It's about one perpetrator, one abuser trying to gain and exercise more and more power and control over their over their chosen victim or partner. Gotcha. Yeah, I, now I know I remember it was just probably even just uh, up to a few years ago. It was it was still controversial to say, you know, you had mentioned like the. Uh, the marital sex, like rape, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, like people, even just a few, I, I feel like it was maybe even five years ago or so that people were still thinking that, you know, not thinking of that as a, um, you know, a part of domestic violence. And I think, I think, you know, as, you know, some of these categories, you know, like we said at the beginning, um, physical violence is the one that everyone thinks about. And then kind of secondary is more the more emotional, psychological uh, abuse. Um, but whenever you get into like financial and the, uh, sexual or the religious aspects of it. Like people are still, I think trying to come around to that. I think they're slowly, uh, coming around to it, but I think 
the tide is moving that way that people are more open to it and i think the reason is is because um people like you are out there correctly explaining that um at the core of all of it is is this power abuse is like this this need to exert power and control over someone else and using whatever it may be um whether it's violence or religious or financial abuse whatever it may be using that power to, to harm uh, someone else so i'm glad that you brought that up because that is something like i said it was very controversial just a few years ago and it's kind of like weird to think back and like really that's controversial to you like you can't see how this is wrong <laughs> like I, I don't know right. it, it just seems like it seems like an obvious like yeah that's not right um but you know that, i could say that with a lot of things in our society i guess right now so uh, you know it is what it is right there um so, so in thinking about, you know, since we're, you know, kind of breaking some myths there, um, how about the, the stereotypical abuse victim? Because, I, I, you know, you mentioned that um, a lot of a lot of the victims, most of the victims, I would say, probably are, are women. Um, but is there a sort of a besides mostly being women, although men can also be abused, is there something that is stereotypical about, you know, abusers or their victims? Is there some kind of trend or does it kind of go across the spectrum of life. It's, it's that, um, there is no stereotype. Um, certainly there's the myth out there, right? That, um, and even our law, if you think about it, even the federal law kind of aids in that, Mm -hmm. um, because we do label everything as gender-based, uh, violence against women act, gender-based violence, this idea that, um, traditionally speaking, uh, women were always the victim, men were always the perpetrator. Um, even to the extent that gender played a significant role in that. But um, not only does it cut across, I like to call it an equal opportunity abuser. Um, It cuts across all socioeconomic barriers and boundaries has, you know, racial boundaries, ethnic boundaries, all of it, right? It happens everywhere. The myth of course is um, people, you know, if we're, if we're really being honest about it, people in a privileged position, assuming that it doesn't happen in their category. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, fall into these myths of, well, oh, that happens in these particular particular ethnic groups. This only happens in poor families. This only happens when this or that is on the table. But, you know, the reality is it's happening in super affluent, very wealthy homes. It's happening, you know, abusers are doctors and uh principals and pastors and you name it um there is no boundary and then also recognizing from a victim or survivor standpoint that statistically yes most are women and statistically by a long shot yes most perpetrators are men um and i have no qualms with that um saying that out loud that sure even male victims statistically are usually victims of male violence. Um, but you know, you've got same sex partner abuse. You have, um, men who are abused by their female partners. Mm -hmm. You have child abuse lumped into this. You've got elder abuse, uh, human trafficking. uh, A lot of times really actually is domestic violence as well. And so, when you break out of that box of just traditional husband beating wife, um, it expands quite significantly. And that's where law helps as well. So when I say that the Illinois Domestic Violence Act is a really strong one, it's because it's defined very well. 
It's it's broad. It encompasses a number of survivors and crimes, and it helps truly explain how much of this isn't just mean and nasty, but it's criminal, and that's important. Um, so with that in mind, um, I was just kind of thinking, why, why is it that you think that, um, that we have these stereotypes then, you know, why, why is it that we kind of think, oh, it's this, you know, poor woman that's being abused by her, you know, alcoholic husband or, or whatever the case may be because of financial reasons and yada, yada. Is, do you think it's like the media? Do you think it's just... Um, you know, you mentioned something about, you know, privilege, like, are we just not wanting to address it within our own boundaries? Do you think there's a reason why we have this, you know, like stereotype in, entrenched in our minds? Sure. There's, um, there's probably a few factors at play. Um, when we do training, especially like the large scale training, we do a historical perspective as well. Um, kind of reminding ourselves that there, there really is historical abusive patriarchal laws and um kind of systems at play that that's real um and i get that that's a super controversial topic today but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reality to that um talking you know even just talking about um husbands raping their wives you know when you talk about court systems having uh precedent sets um lord hale in the 1500s i think i've got the date right as well um, essentially like made that law was that a husband couldn't rape his wife. And that was set in stone. And we were quoting and justifying letting husbands off the hook in America hundreds of years later based on that law. Wow. So some of that is certainly at play. Um, then you tie in the historical context, even relatively recently that we made domestic violence, a civil issue for a long time. That that was something that police were like, hey, you know, like even if they showed up, everybody's safe, everybody fine. Okay, this is even if they weren't, you know, this is a civil matter. You guys deal with this. This isn't something for the courts or prisons or whatever else. And it really. When you talk about domestic violence isn't new, it's just being named. Hmm. Um, All of this started essentially. Um, paralleling the civil rights movement. Okay. Um, the battered women's movement and the civil rights movements were happening at the exact same time. They were supporting each other. They were getting wins side by side. And that's when some of these myths and some of these things started getting broken down. Then what's left is essentially just the argument or the myth creator of it makes me feel better if I say it's other people. Yeah. And that's a very American thing, right? Like we can say that, that we have this habit of saying not in my camp and that makes us feel better. Right. Absolutely. Wow. Sorry. Like it's, uh, it's a lot to think about, you know, like I said at the beginning, this is a heavy topic. So as you're sitting here, you know, talking about it, I thought I was going to be a little bit more prepared, but as you're talking, I'm like, wow, man, this is, there's a lot to this. Like there's a lot of depth to it. Sure. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, um, I guess just kind of moving on, you know, some had protected, predicted uh, at the, you know, throughout the pandemic uh, that we've gone through over the last year, um, because people were being locked down and and being at home, uh, that there was going to be an uptick in domestic violence. Have you seen this to be true in in your in your role? Um, 
Yes and no. Complicated question. Um, do I think it increased incidence? I do. Um, and the reason I think that, and it's it's kind of an assumption, is just that we essentially trapped survivors and perpetrators in their home more permanently. Okay. So as if it wasn't already happening enough, we shut everything down. So kids weren't getting out of the home. Parents weren't getting out of the home. And you truly had several months where survivors and perpetrators were with each other 24-7. So do I think it was escalated at that point? Absolutely. And, And you start throwing in, you know, they're not excuses, but they're aggravating factors for abusers that, you know, cabin fever was creating just that much more supposed excuse to do what they were doing. Um, Where it got complicated statistically, and we kind of knew this was going to happen inside, if you will, Mm -hmm. is that we stopped hearing from survivors for a long stretch. Uh. Um, Our shelters were affected. Uh, Many of our shelters shut down for a few months because this was like nothing we were prepared for. Mm -hmm. Um, But we went through a period, probably somewhere between three to five, maybe six months where our orders of protection were still pretty strong, but everything else, like we just stopped hearing from survivors altogether. Now we know that that doesn't mean DV stopped. Right. We know it's probably worse and they have no, breathing room they have no opportunities to get help to call the hotline nothing um and so what we anticipated then and started preparing ourselves for was this wave we're like okay this is going to result in a giant wave of of people needing help at some point the irony and i don't know why i guess this but i kind of guess this might happen was it was delayed um the wave didn't happen when we thought it would And I truly believe that that's because even when everything opened back up, relatively speaking, uh, and I'm in Illinois, so it was like full on shutdown. Right, right, right. Um, (laughs) Even when it relatively opened up, I knew deep down, you still had protections that prevented people from being evicted. You still had paycheck protection programs. You had unemployment paying out through the roof and people not returning to work. So even though the government said, hey, you can go out now, they weren't. Right. And so I would say it really wasn't until late fall getting into like the winter that we started seeing the waves of people coming back for shelter. Okay. Um, even though we had been open for several months, um, there was like a point where all of a sudden week after week we were full. That's that's crazy. Um, and, and so kind of in, in just thinking about the fact that I, I said that's crazy, thinking about how um, some of the things that you must see and hear and, uh, you know, just experience with with these um, these abuse survivors. How do you how do you deal with processing that yourself? You know, like I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, thinking about these things, these hypotheticals in my head, like even though these are actually real people, they're hypotheticals to me and I guess. But um 
just for me in this moment of sitting here, it kind of makes me sit and think like, and, and stop and just need a process. But you're kind of dealing with this on an ongoing basis. So how is it that you, uh, you know, sit down and just like decompress from all of it, process it and kind of keep yourself from, you know, going over the line, you know, or like losing it or, or, or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Um, you know, there's some intentional moves that we make, um, in this, uh, industry, if you will, in social work and victim services. Um, I will say personally, I have to be a little extra intentional, especially as a supervisor about taking that seriously, because I do think that God kind of blessed me with a very even keeled emotional spirit. Okay. So there's not a, like, I don't go through a roller coaster of emotions very much. Um, but that said, um, in fact, let me say this as well. I want to give credit to first responders as well, because we kind of deal with the aftermath, Sure. but the aftermath while it's messy and can be complicated is not as traumatic as being the ER worker, the school counselor, the police officer, paramedic, you know, all of those folks who are the actual first responders who are dealing with the immediate crisis. Um, they don't get enough credit for doing victim services and they do every day. Yeah. So I actually think that their exposure to trauma is worse. Um, but that said, we obviously swim in it every day. Sure. Yeah. And so, um, we practice a lot of self care and that's different for everybody. So being really intentional about, you know, your self care methods and things, taking breaks, you know, doing whatever you need to do to kind of wash off, uh, the stuff and kind of always ground yourself and keep yourself going. Boundaries are huge. Um, and that goes with like anything like it shoot. You probably, you know, get this a little bit, even doing foster work, like boundaries are massive. Absolutely. You, you have to be able to keep things relatively professional and not go overboard, not over invest in somebody per se, especially in, in my line of work. Um, I would say, um, you know, everybody's got their own thing too. Like family is super important. God to me is super important. So my ability, um, even talking about boundaries, like I'm very intentional about the fact that when I'm there, I'm all in, Mm -hmm. but when I'm done, I'm done. And I have to be able to take that hat off, leave it in my office, go home and be the dad I'm supposed to be, be, the husband I'm supposed to be and so forth. Um, if I take all of that stuff home with me, I can't. And, uh, so having good alternatives, other aspects to your life, having a well-rounded life, I think helps. And it gives you that perspective you need. Um, but then those boundaries are what keeps it all in, in check and in balance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Glad that you get, you guys, uh, are intentional about that. That could, uh, you know, I, I imagine that, working in that field can have a, a high rate of turnover and burnout um, be, just because of, of how heavy it is. So um, that's good. Um, so kind of and uh, thinking about the fact that you said that, you know, you, you take off the hat when you get home and uh, you know, so that way you can be the best husband, be the best father that you, that you can be um, has, has your job 
actually impacted uh, the way that you do parent or the way that you are a husband? Like, have you found yourself like saying like, wait a second, maybe I should, you know, respond a little bit, a little less angrily or, um, or, or something like that, you know, has, has your, has your job, you know, impacted the way that you live your personal life? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and that's complicated. Um, I'm probably unique in that I'm a man in the field. And so, um, really when we're honest with ourselves as men, we really are bathed in some conditioning, if you will. Um, as we grow up in this world that says like, here's what it means to be man. Here's what it means to be masculine. And that means like winning every fight and never backing down and not having emotions and like that doesn't fly (laughs) all that unhealthy stuff that, yeah, we've been told since birth (laughs) that doesn't work. So in a lot of ways, um, I think doing this work does make me a better dad and a better parent because I'm more aware I'm more open emotionally and otherwise. Um, it certainly makes me self-aware of the words I use, the things I say, the tones. Um, you know, there's nothing about my natural upbringing or life. And it's not a discredit to anybody. There's just nothing about my natural upbringing as a man, a white man, especially in America, that said, you know, here's what it means to be aware of trauma and, right. you know, emotional health and things like that. that. That was not a part of the package deal. Okay, so uh, so for those of us you know who don't work in the field um, and maybe have not come in contact to that with that trauma, um, are there any kind of key signs that we could look for? You know, if we suspect that um, maybe a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a coworker is is going through something. I mean, obviously, if you see some bruises and other physical markings, that's one thing. Um, but what other kind of indicators can we look for? Yeah, so. Um... I knew this was going to be a question because it's always a question. Um, So I kind of came preloaded with some, some of my go-to answers. Um, But let's start with, it's very difficult because we already broke down that there's no stereotypes. Right. So there's no type of person we're looking for per se. Um, So then you're really looking at just like raw signs, like what could I spot as a family member or a friend or something along those lines. And some of like, I guess the go-tos that are potential um, signs, you you touched on injuries, um, but very like specifically unexplained and frequent injuries. So obviously one bad bruise could certainly qualify, but when you start seeing somebody who has like regular injuries that are not minor Mm -hmm. and the stories don't line up, you know, like they're, um, they're just totally unexplained injuries. They tell you it was like, Oh, I got hit in the face with a softball or, you know, I fell down the stairs. Well, right. Right. That bruise looks an awful lot like four, (laughs) four fingers. So maybe let's talk about that. So that's definitely one. Um, you know, and to be clear, that's what doctors look for in the ER, right? They do x-rays and they can tell that different injuries are healing at different rates. And therefore this person has been injured over a span of time. This wasn't one incident. Um, 
one thing I um, have is like constant excuses for partner's behavior. So the abusive partner, they're obnoxious. And to be blunt, a lot of abusers like put their best foot forward when they're in public. Mm -hmm. They have like this dual persona, Um, but some don't. And so when you have that abusive partner who is, you know, acting up and being ridiculous in public or whatever else, and the partner is constantly defending that other person, even when it doesn't make sense in the moment, you know, that's a potential sign because why do they feel like there's a condition there, right? If you don't step up for me, if you don't back me up, what's the cost going to be hmm. later on when we get home? Um, being evasive um, and, and being hesitant to speak freely for survivors is pretty common. Um, especially when you notice that as a change. So somebody who's just like kind of avoiding questions and, um, you know, being hesitant to really disclose or talk about anything. Um, something I talk about a lot with survivors is this concept of losing your voice because abusers are so much about power and control that there is ridicule and punishment of some sort just for having opinions, talking back, exercising, whatever, verbally. Right. And so a lot of survivors, essentially, because there's always a cost to to pay, they shut up. Mm-hmm. They lose their voice over time. And so um, when you spot that, when you have a friend who would typically, you know, be communicative and and all of that, and then even when they're in your presence, they just don't ever share anymore. They're just... They don't have opinions. They don't have goals, wishes, nothing. That says something. Um, starting to, you know, be missing in action from work, social outings, family gatherings when you didn't used to be. Um, what is it that's preventing you from taking part in life socially that you used to? Uh, noticeable changes in behavior and attitude when the partner is around. I always use the example that, like, if you're out with friends and the victim in the situation is like, you know, laughing it up, having a good time, taking part in the jokes and conversation. And as soon as the partner ever enters the room, they they completely change. Mm. They get quiet. They get like stone-faced. There's no more smiles. There's no more joking, nothing. You know, that's a huge sign to me. Sure. Because there's that control at place. Like, I've got to watch what I do. Um. Hopelessness can be, um, doesn't necessarily speak to it as a guarantee, but when somebody really has like lost hope in life, um, they're not pursuing careers or anything anymore. They just are kind of floating. Um, it could be a sign. And then, um, an unhealthy emotional stance. This this is the last one. Blaming yourself for everything, even when other people are at fault. Um, and it might show itself maybe not with like the partner in your presence, but like I use kind of a silly example again, if you're out to eat with your friends, the survivors out to eat with their friends and a waiter spills a drink on them and the waiter's like super apologetic or whatever else. And they're like, no, 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 I'm so sorry. It's my fault. I shouldn't have been there. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they're always the problem in any situation, like they're what's wrong with the world. There's somebody conditioning them to believe that. Yeah. Absolutely. That everything that that's bad that happens is them. 
Yeah, you know, honestly, that uh, that all all of what you just said was exactly what I learned whenever I was going through the uh, foster care training um, certification that we had to do. Oh, good. Yeah, so a lot of, I mean, obviously, uh, we were we're looking for it in in in, in just kids, whereas um, you know other people may be looking for it in adults as well as as children. But yeah, it's it's a lot of the same behavior, and um, yeah, it's it's just. Uh, it's very sad, you know, uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to really think that that people go through that. And uh, yeah. So, OK, so imagine we are uh, those friends out to dinner with with our friend and suddenly they start showing some of these signs We're we're kind of getting a gut feeling that maybe something is going on. What's the best course of action? Should we like talk to them? Should we call someone? Um, what what should we do in, in that case? Um, a few things. Uh, I'll start by don't do anything without their permission. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't call anybody unless they want to. Um, Cause it can make things worse. Sure. Um, never like go and pick a fight with the abuser or anything. Cause guess what? That abuser is not going to do squat for you. Like with you nine times out of 10. Right. But that victim is going to pay a huge price later. Um, so what you should do uh, one, let's just start with like, be compassionate. Reserve all your judgments, reserve all your thoughts and opinions and everything else. Just practice pure compassion and just be there for them. Um, To steal a a motto from the sexual assault world, um, start by believing. Mm -hmm. If they share their story with you, don't, don't question it. No matter how crazy it sounds, because I'm telling you, I have heard some of the wildest victim testimony. That sounds so bizarre. But I also know it's 100 percent true. Right. And so whatever they say, you just start by believing, even if it seems like the couldn't be further from the truth. Just start by believing. Um, listen and don't interrupt, like listen to their whole story. Don't ask questions unless they like really want you to. And just start by hearing their story, because you might be the first person that they've been able to talk to openly in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um. There's an issue. Um, in fact, so this class I teach with survivors, um, I teach it every week. It's an hour and a half long. And each week I do a topic and I spend an entire week on this question, an entire hour and a half lesson on this question. Why don't you just leave? Mm. And it's such a bad, broken question in that it's ignorant. It's very narrow because the number of barriers to to survivors just leaving is substantial. It's it's such a huge pool. Sure. Um, and actually, what it does is it's victim blaming, mm-hmm. right? It puts all of the responsibility on the person being harmed and none on the person harming. So um, that whole idea of why don't you just leave? It's it's the most common question that survivors hear on a regular basis. Um, I do think it's important, you know, learn about domestic violence. If you can Um, improve your perspective and the lens that you're looking through things. So if you, you know, if you have some suspicions, you got a family member who, you know, is in a bad relationship, go and learn something about it before you go diving back into that pool. Um, Know your local resources is a good start. You know, a lot of times survivors don't survivors and allies like support friends, family, all of that don't even know places like Dove exists. Mm-hmm. And so 
starting with, oh, by the way, I actually have solutions to your problems. Like, where am I going to go? Where am I going to sleep? Who's going to feed me this or that? There are places that have all the answers to those questions. And a lot of times the survivor doesn't even know they exist. Right. Um, and then I'll say this too: always be ready to help no matter how many times you feel like saying, I told you so. Um, so we have this issue in domestic violence where survivors will leave and then go back or they'll stay even though it got really bad. They'll go to their friend's house for a night and then they'll go back. Um, and so there's a statistic out there and it's important to know because it doesn't seem to be changing. Um, they use the statistic that on average, a survivor will go back into that relationship five to seven times before they leave permanently. Oh, wow. Which means some, yeah, some it's one and done others. It's forever. And when you say five to seven times, that doesn't tell you how long in between. Right. Yeah. That could be months or years. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, you know, I work with survivors who got married to an abuser at 18 and they're coming to me 40 years later and you don't know whether it's the first time or the 27th time. And it kind of doesn't matter. You just have to meet them where they're at because there's a reason they're at your door that day. And that's all that matters. Right. Wow. 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 Um, so just kind of a, a, a follow-up question, uh, you know, cause we're, we're, we're obviously talking uh, about the, uh, the survivors. And I like that you're using the word survivors uh, there. Um, I think that can be empowering. Obviously, some of these cases do end up very negatively where life is lost, but I like the empowerment from the idea of calling them survivors as opposed to victims, even though they are both. Mm-hmm. Um, but in kind of thinking about the other side of the, the table here, um, thinking about the abusers and, um, you know, knowing that obviously they're doing something that's very awful. They're, they're lashing out against someone that they've, they're supposed to love um, and, and, you know, treat well and take care of and all that stuff. There, there's, I would say it feels like there's probably something deeper inside of them that's causing this. Uh, maybe some unresolved issue. Um, maybe they were a victim of abuse growing up. Uh, is that something that you would agree with that? Like maybe the, the, the abusers have also, you know, sometimes come from those situations. And if so, like, how do you, how would you, I mean, do you think it would be wise to like, how do they get help? You know, cause it's not just the survivor that needs help, but this person who's obviously unable to control their, their behaviors, their anger, their emotions, and they're lashing out at someone else. Like, how do they get help? Because there's something, it seems that maybe there's deeper there um, that needs to be treated. Yeah. Um, that's a really, really good question, actually. Um, so I'm going to start with talking about, what I call these two truths of domestic violence. And that is that, um, generally speaking, the two truths are that one domestic violence is a learned behavior, meaning the abuser either experienced abuse themselves or they were coached in some way, meaning they watched dad do it to mom They had mentors who taught them this form of masculinity. And sometimes it's not direct. Like sometimes the coaching wasn't like, here's how you, you know, abuse a woman. 
Um, but it might've been like, here's what it means to be a man. Sure. And, and that, and that definition that they got was you take ownership, you conquer, you don't show weakness, you, and you always, always, always maintain power and control. And that equation in and of itself is enough, right? So that's the first truth. It's always a learned behavior. Very, very rarely does somebody just like have this, um, I don't know, depravity within them. I don't use that word a lot outside of a religious context, but sure. I think, you know, I'm fine with it. You're, you're probably cool with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, very rarely is it just like this depravity that's in somebody that they're like, it doesn't, you know, I had the best upbringing in the world and I'm still going to do it. Um, so the other truth is that it's always, always, always a choice behavior. Mm-hmm. And this part's important because there is a myth out there that essentially girls who are abused grew up to be victims and boys who are abused grew up to be abusers. And it's a fallacy. Not that it doesn't happen, but it's not a statistical truth. Okay. There are people who are abused who grew up to be neither. There are boys who are abused and grow up to be victims. And there are girls who are abused and grow up to be abusers. Um, there's no like direct correlation other than the fact that generally speaking, men choose violence more than women. Sure. Um, so the important piece is that no matter what somebody learned or experienced at the end of the day, they still are choosing to harm somebody they love. And I like that you used that language earlier. You said that, you know, abuse is essentially somebody choosing to harm somebody they're supposed to love. And I say that phrasing a lot. Um, to say we have to be honest about the fact that they are in fact each time they do it choosing to exercise that abusive tactic to intentionally gain power and control mm-hmm. and and why that's so important is because i deal and i guarantee you there are more survivors who were also abused who do not choose to abuse Right. Right. So it's a choice. But saying that we have these scapegoats, right? Um, We have these. So when I'm working with survivors, because they care about that person, you know, more often than not, they don't want the relationship to end. They just want the abuse to stop. And so they're looking for reasons to explain why their partner is doing this stuff. And, um, you know, there are what I would say, like three big scapegoats that are not true. Um, the first is one, they were abused as a kid. And that's, you know, that's what's up today. Trauma created this abusive person, but really they're a good, good person, blah, blah, blah. And again, that's half true. But a lot of times the survivor I'm talking to was also abused. And so acknowledging the fact that like, you know, you went through the same thing they did, but you are making different decisions. So that doesn't excuse what they're doing. Then um, the other two most common scapegoats, and you probably could guess these because this is what everybody always thinks, is uh, one, mental health, and two, addiction. Mm -hmm. That it is mental health and substance use or abuse that causes domestic violence, and it's not true. Um. It is an aggravating factor. It's what I call throwing gas on a pre-existing fire. 
the fire was already going. It already existed. They were already almost always doing other abusive things that maybe weren't recognized as violence or criminal. Um, then adding on unchecked or untreated mental health or, you know, abuse substances, it just creates more frequency of incidents and more intensity of incidents. That's how I would describe it. Well, Jared, you certainly have given us a, a lot to think about with uh, in, in terms of thinking about domestic violence. But I do want to I, I want to go ahead and, and shift a little bit here and, uh, you know, kind of uh, grapple this uh, grapple with a second part of uh, what you do and kind of what you teach on. And that's with like regards to like sex trafficking, which is sort of a hot topic um, in, in the U.S. right now, um, especially I think among churches, a lot of churches in the last few years have you know, being giving money to organizations that fight sex trafficking abroad. Um, and so you, you, part of your job, you said you, like you were, you raised awareness uh, around the topic. Do you do anything else with it? Yeah. So, um, you know, when it comes to trafficking issues um, and actually, so I'll start by defining because a lot of um, folks actually never got this training. This is the interesting thing about the difference between domestic violence and human trafficking is we've been doing domestic violence work now for decades. Mm -hmm. We have laws, we have all, all this stuff, right? Decades of work, shelters and everything in place. Human trafficking doesn't have it. Um, we've got some federal things in place. Um, we've got a lot of private agencies and things doing work. Awareness is pretty shaky. And so this idea, this whole topic of human trafficking is really new, um, generally speaking. So my interaction with it is this, that most human trafficking, ironically, especially domestic trafficking, is also domestic violence. Mm. And that is because of two things, um, generally speaking, is that there is usually still a domestic relationship of some form, even if it's manipulated. So even if the trafficker is pretending to be dad, boyfriend, husband, you name it there's these manipulated relationships that the survivor feels is very real. Um, and so the relationship is there to qualify it. And then a lot of times because of the control, the extra control, even if you will, with trafficking, they also literally share a domicile. So they either live with that person or the trafficker like owns and controls the house that that one survivor or maybe many, maybe, maybe many um, trafficking survivors all live in and share. And so generally speaking, our domestic violence program and shelter works with trafficking victims open door because they almost always qualify for our services. Then beyond that, uh, I'm involved with the set free movements. Um, we've got a local chapter where, and ours is interesting because it's actually kind of a collaborative of agencies as opposed to a church thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and we do a lot of awareness. So we do trainings, we've done a little conference, um, lots of awareness and training and stuff like that. And then, um, a little over a year now, I've been involved with the central Illinois human trafficking task force, which is also relatively new. And it's an attempt to bring professionals from kind of all major avenues. So we have victim services, we've got law enforcement, we've got um, the 
health and kind of medical services. We've got all these um, subcommittees of all of these professionals trying to make a difference on a state level and kind of figuring out what that looks like. So that's the different areas that I very intentionally do human trafficking work. Okay, great. All right. So what you're saying is, uh, so, you know, the, 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 like the movie taken where you see the, you know, teenage girl off on vacation or school or something like that in Paris and she's kidnapped and put on a market, you know, after being drugged and some rich, you know, oil princes or something like that are, are, you know, wanting to buy her for all of their devious uses. That's not the case with, uh, with trafficking most of the time. Right. Yeah, I mean, so you you hit the nail on the head when you talk about kind of a reference point. Um, and Hollywood is a huge reference point for us in America. So um, when I'm doing not so much myth busting, but kind of stereotype busting of human trafficking, I use the movie Taken. Um, it And it has all of like the stereotypes in it, right? That like uh, human trafficking happens overseas. It's not an American thing that it involves like abduction or kidnapping that um, essentially people get yanked off the streets and they get thrown into this industry and taken advantage of. Um, There's this element of um, large criminal enterprises where it's like mafias or, you know, terrorist organizations or something large scale who are doing the kidnapping, doing this, um, this, um, dark industry. And then even this aspect of like third worldness, if you will, Mm -hmm. where like it's the rich girl getting kidnapped in a van, but then winds up in a brothel drug induced in some rundown jacked up part of town. And that serves all of these stereotypes. It kind of cements in our heads like, Oh, that's what trafficking is. And that's not happening here. So we're cool. Like as long as I'm extra safe when I go to France or uh, Mexico or wherever, like I don't have to worry about that here because right. that that can't happen here. And it's not true. Uh, it's not true at all. So so when we talk about, I guess, what human trafficking is on average and I'll get we'll give the American version because, you know, that's our context. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I always start by. I guess, giving the definition that human trafficking is two things. Human trafficking, generally speaking, is split into two categories, and that is labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Um, Sex trafficking is obviously the popular one. Mm -hmm. That's what most people talk about. And it's probably on average, especially in America, the more widely um, used form of trafficking. Um, But there is that differentiation Uh, When we talk about trafficking, we define it as essentially being forced to do something under the um, pressure of these three things, force, fraud, or or coercion. And one of those three has to be at play for it to qualify. Um, So essentially you have this factor of um, being forced to do something in exchange for money, goods, services, blah, blah, blah. So there's a business transaction Mm -hmm. and that the person being forced to do it can't simply walk away that there's some kind of force, fraud or coercion at play on behalf of the trafficker to keep them there. Um, And when, and when you, I guess when I describe those or define those, it helps us put it into our context a little bit better. 
in that force is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. That's like the the acting out the physical threat. If you leave, I will do this, and then I do it. Right. So that's force. Uh, fraud is the trick. Fraud is the hey, I've got this great work opportunity. If you come here, you'll be a famous actress. You'll have a singing career. You'll do this or that. And then you get there and you're stuck. Um, It was a lie. You don't have the means to get help, get back home, blah, blah, blah. And that fraudulent activity is both what got you there. And sometimes it's the fraud that keeps you there as well. If it has to do with like, maybe you're, legal status, your documentation, something along those lines. Then the coercion is what I call the threat that is so good that acting on it isn't necessary. Oh, wow. So the, if you try to escape, I will kill your sister. Yeah. And the thing about traffickers is a lot of times they come with ammo. So, they come with like surveillance of that sister. I've got pictures of her here and wouldn't it be sad if something happened to her? Mm. Um, And so that threat is so strong that the survivor doesn't even attempt to risk it because the cost, if they followed through would be too, too great. Um, So there's that. Now, what does it look like? Locally, Why is it not the Taken movie? Um, For starters, we talked about the abduction. Well, it's not usually abduction. Um, More often than not, it's probably closer to some kind of persuasion, grooming activity, something along those lines. Um, You're not going to see a lot of uh, folks thrown into vans. And I've literally done trainings right here in central Illinois where somebody in the room is like, so uh, what you're saying is there are little girls being thrown into vans in our neighborhood. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not it. Um, you know, it's manipulated like relationships, um, things like that. Um, it definitely is happening locally. Um, one of the, I, I guess one of the big issues to think about is this issue of demand. Um Demand is what drives trafficking. So just having people in the world, not who are willing to traffic, that's the lesser group, but people who are willing to pay for sex, even if it's forced. Mm -hmm. Um, And even more perversely, people who are willing to pay for sex with a minor and they know it. Yeah. Um, So that demand is what drives the industry, but then you still need buyers, right? Right. You still have what you still need to have what we call Johns. So the, I think that's the telling point. This is why it's such an American thing is because we have money. Yeah. We have as high a population of generally wealthy people. Like even our middle class are rich compared to the rest of the world. So we have this country, the setting where we have the demand, we have the perversion And we have more people on average with that kind of disposable income than most other places on the planet. Um, That's why other industries like porn and strip clubs and things thrive here as well. It's because people have that money. Sure. And that's as much of why it's an American thing as anywhere in the world. And that's even why a lot of these other countries are like, oh, it's probably happening there. 
Yeah, probably is. And do you know who else is using it there? Americans. Right. Because of go on vacation to, to, you know, sex tourism or or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Sex tourism. And, and that just like catches people off guard. So like you're saying both we're doing it here and there. So like, uh Oh, right. Um, so, you know, that's a big piece of it. I think the language we use and the way we look at it is really important. Um, most trafficking is happening right in our backyards. It's personal. Um, it's developed relationships. Uh, the majority is probably um, prostitutes or sex workers. That's what we call them, but they're actually sex trafficking victims. They're being forced to do that work and we don't realize it. Uh, and we have a history of society and culture and even Hollywood painting that picture. Uh, we glorify the idea of a pimp. Mm. We think that pimps are like managers and bodyguards to um, enterprising sex workers. And they're not, they are the traffickers. They're, they're violent. They're using, you know, all of these force fraud and coercion tactics. Um, you know, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because as soon as you said that, whenever you said that we glorified the pimp, the first thing that came to my mind was whenever I was a kid and I used to watch, you know, the WWF back in the day, they had a, a character on there. His name was the Godfather. He dressed mm-hmm. as a pimp and he, his saying was pimping ain't easy, you know? And it was like, this was something in, at sixth grade that me and my friends were saying to each other, like, oh, pimping ain't easy. Like not even knowing what that meant, but it was something that was very catchy. And we just knew that this guy had a lot of, you know, attractive women around him. Like, hey, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, like it, it, on its on its face, it sounds weird to say that. Oh, we glorify pimping, but like we actually we really do. Like, it sounds weird, but it's like actually true. A hundred percent, we do. And I so I do this exercise in trainings and stuff where I, you know, have people tell me a Hollywood pimp um, because we have things like we grew up on Pimp My Ride. Mm-hmm. Um, we we all know what the cartoonized pimp looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, fur coat, lots of colors, cane, top hat, feather. Right. Like all that, like we have that picture. Um, whenever I ask for a name, how many times do you think I hear Snoop Dogg? Oh, right. Yeah. And why? Because, because that's like the, the whole catchphrase. Right. Um, and then I even bring up the fact that, um, what was the movie called? Hustle and flow. Oh yeah. Yeah. Won a Grammy for the song. It's hard out here for a pimp, Hmm. which when you understand what really is going on in that world. It's the most insulting thing on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, no, it's not. It's hard out here for trafficking victims. Yeah. Um, now nobody wants to hear that, but we, we 100% glorify this idea of a pimp. We have a, a very bad definition set. And, you know, going back, what do we call trafficking victims? Really awful things. Right. We call them prostitutes. We Mm -hmm. call them hookers and excuse my language, like hookers and whores and all of that stuff. Right. That's that's what we call and have called for decades trafficking victims. And we wonder why we're so far behind the ball Hmm. because we we created it. We created the world where it thrives. So you, you, you'd kind of uh, just touched on it briefly uh, a few moments ago, but you mentioned that, um, you know, something about sex work and the sex work industry um, and specifically uh, thinking about the growth, the, I would say not just the growth, but the explosion 
of uh, sex work online, pornographic material online. Um, you know, they have all, I'm not going to list sites out there cause I don't want anyone to go look them up, but you know, there's for any kind of, uh, fetish or any kind of desire, you can go online and find something to, to, to whet your appetite. And I, I've read stats and I don't remember them off the top of my head, but, um, a lot of those people who are women and men who are involved in those activities, um, whether they seem like they're consensual or not many times are not consensual and, and therefore I guess would fall under this category of, of being a trafficking victim. Do you think, you know, is this something that you're seeing as well? Do you, would you agree with that assessment that, you know, the, the explosion of, uh, you know, pornography and online adults, uh, entertainment and sex work online, do you think that's, that's, uh, contributed, uh, to the, to the, you know, I guess this explosion of, uh, sexual trafficking. Completely. Um, not only, I don't think it contributed. I think it created it. Mm. I think it started it. Okay. Um, humans have been monetizing other human beings for all of time, whether that was formally with, um, slavery, which is, a, you know, it's labor trafficking slavery. Right. Um, we've been monetizing human beings forever. Those industries, porn, strip clubs. I mean, sex work is kind of a given. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, just like, just look at porn and strip clubs alone. Those industries demand providers, right? Somebody wants to pay to view sex, to have sex or to mimic sex in a way like strip clubs, you know, with, you know, lap dances or whatever else, there's somebody willing to pay for that product. It demands that there's a provider out there because there is not enough women willfully willing to just sell their body sure. to, to meet that demand in the world. There's not, in my opinion. Um, and so it dictates in a way that if the industry is to survive, it needs force. It needs manipulation. Um, we know for a fact it's widespread because we hear from victims who were porn stars and they talk about the manipulation. They talk about the brainwashing and being forced to fake it, mm -hmm. being forced to put on a show. We hear from kids who were forced to put on a show against their will. And we hear from kids, um, little children, in fact, who are so brainwashed and conditioned to think that that's love and that's normal that they're not even faking it mm. but it's still abuse um so we know that that's part of it um we know that there are people who are willing to pay for it even when it's children like that's what they're choosing i'm gonna go to that site to look for two-year-olds and like, you know, when we say young, people are always thinking like, well, he said 13, so probably like nine, right? Like, no, newborns. That's that infants. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I've heard of stories about that. And it's just one of those things I, I like, how, how, how I, I just, I, I don't get that. Yeah. That's, that's their desire. That's, mm -hmm. that's how deep and how dark it goes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't think they're complicit. I don't think they. Um, contribute to it. I think they are it. I think they created it. Mm. Yeah. You know, a few years ago I was, um, 
I forget. I think it was, uh, there's this, I think there's organizations called XXX church and, uh, they actually, they're, they're a ministry that reach out to former, uh, porn stars and, and sex workers. And they were doing some interviews of some of the people who were involved with it and the amount of, um, you know, alcohol and drugs that they, these, you know, men and women are saying that they needed to go through in order to just do their quote unquote job that they were being, you know, paid for. Mm. Um, it's just incredible. And how many, how many people who are involved in sex work, you know, ultimately end up overdosing or, you know, committing suicide, uh, just because of the, the pain. And, uh, that's just, you know, those, those are not things that people think about whenever they go online and they, you know, click on the website or, or go to the strip club or, or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that people need to hear because Man. yeah, it's like you said, you're not complicit. You're creating it. Yeah. And you just hit it. Like you don't know how hard you just hit that. Um, there are really awesome agencies and ministries out there who like go and meet um, sex workers and strippers right where they're at which like think about the amount of love and humility that has to go into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing. So going back to this class, I spent an hour and a half talking about substance abuse and DV or trafficking. Mm-hmm. I spend 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, maybe talking about why abusers use and how that's not an excuse for abuse. The rest of the time, a hundred percent is why victims use. Right. Because there is this fallacy out there that, and let's, you know, so we're talking about trafficking. What do people think? Oh, well, they're probably hookers because they're trying to feed that addiction, right? They're junkies who are doing unhealthy lifestyles and they're just trying to feed that addiction. But what they don't realize, what the public doesn't realize is that a lot of times those trafficking victims started out as innocent people, innocent children, mostly. And Um, many traffickers who don't even use themselves intentionally start addictions because it makes their victim more vulnerable and manipulatable. And then you add on the trauma, which is what you just said, that when you've got somebody who was already forced into an addiction and they're being forced to have sex with 10 plus strangers, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They're using the drugs to survive, psychologically speaking, because people cannot do that and maintain their sanity. Right. And so they're choosing in fact i've so i've um had the privilege of going through some trainings where survivors were the trainer they were they were the facilitator oh wow and them telling saying to me drugs saved my life (laughs) and and you're thinking like what do you mean by that because drugs in that period of their life helped them survive psychologically to get through what they were forced to do and then there came a day where they both got free and then had to do the hard work of overcoming that addiction. But there was a period where cocaine or heroin or whatever saved their life. And that is a big pill that very few are able to swallow because it's so counterintuitive right, to yeah. what our culture says about addiction. We can't fathom that those junkies 
are not junkies at all. They're victims. Wow, man, you're we're we're, we're hitting it deep right now. Like it's uh, wow, that's definitely some good stuff that 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 you're you're mentioning right now. So uh, thank you for for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if we could uh, shift gears a little bit away from um, some of that more deep, depressing stuff, it's <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, still it's still talking about uh, you know the the whole trafficking aspect. Um, what what would you say? Are, you know, are there kind of kind of going back to uh, you know when we we're talking about uh, domestic violence a while ago? Uh, you know, are there any signs that you could look for um, in a friend, uh, coworker? you know, you know, kids schoolmate or something like that, that they may be involved in trafficking. Um, yeah, there are. Um, and I will, I'll be the first to say that some of these are going to sound strange because we have to start with the knowledge that, uh, even though most of us think of prostitutes, for instance, as adults, most trafficking victims are actually children. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the average age, there's some really not to get all depressing again, right off the bat, there are some statistics out there that matter and it helps you understand the population we're talking about is that one, the average age of entrance, um, into sex trafficking, I believe is still 12 to 14 years old. Oh God. Um, which means we're talking about children and teens Mm -hmm. and not old teens. Um, then mix together the fact that. Um, and I forget where I even heard the statistic, um, but the average life expectancy for a trafficking victim once they've entered the life is seven years, oh. which tells you that on average, they're always children. So as I go through some of these signs, you're going to think, well, that's kind of funny because like, you know, who cares? They're an adult. Right. They're not. That's not who we're talking about. When we're talking about that population, we're actually talking about children and teens more often than not. So. Let's talk about some of those signs. And we do have like kind of a short list, if you will. So Mm -hmm. I'll just kind of go through them, Um, especially for kids, little kids, um, possession of a cell phone that is unknown to the caregiver or numerous cell phones. So if there's a cell phone that like the parent or the guardian has no idea where they got it, obviously a bad sign who gave them that and why Um, numerous cell phones is a huge red flag because highly active, if you will, um, trafficking victims have to have multiple phones in order to maintain the business aspect, if you will, Mm -hmm. to keep up with the calls and the appointments and and that kind of thing. Um, current signs of physical abuse or sexually transmitted diseases, uh, obviously a natural sign, um, a conversation that you would eventually wind up having, like, where did that come from? What's going on? Um, STIs or STDs, obviously, um, in children, um, is something worth questioning, especially again, when you're talking about little kids, like, should we even have a sexual romantic relationship at this point? Right, right, right. Um, children making reference to having a pimp or even a daddy and like paying attention to lingo. So when you start hearing somebody referencing somebody on their life and they're not talking about their actual father, um, that lingo is really important because language and code words and, you know, lingo is very, very key in trafficking. Um, that lifestyle has an entire dictionary, mm. um, that when that, when that's being used, it's a bad sign because nobody else uses it. Sure. 
um, children making references to terminology of the sex trade kind of delved into that. But, um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there about, you know, Johns instead of buyers and different names for the pimp, um, talking about the life, um, a stable, um, which is the group of victims, things like that. Um, some less appropriate for this. Sure. Um, so anytime that terminology is being used secrecy about whereabouts, um, which, you know, that's difficult because sometimes kids just do that. Right. Um, but being secretive about where they're at all the time or lying about where they're at all the time. Um, some of the testimony videos I use in training, um, they talk about how like they joined the track team, but never actually went to track practice. So stuff like that. Um, being truant from school, um, because oftentimes what traffickers, especially like the boyfriend trafficker is doing with kids is, um, pulling them out of school because uh, a lot of schools, unfortunately don't pay close enough attention. And, um, it's, it's like the free period. Like even, even really active and involved parents don't realize their kid is out trafficking or being trafficked during the day because they think they're at school. Right. So just a little side story, it, it, just in case anyone doesn't believe that schools aren't on top of kids. So last year, um, before we went to lockdown and my kid was at school, um, we we were uh, she apparently had skipped class to go hang out with a boyfriend or, or something like that. And um, we had f- uh, somehow found out that she wasn't in class and um, we called the school and was like, hey. Uh, we don't think she's in her class. Could you like check and see if she's like wandering the halls or whatever? And they're like, uh, we don't actually even have a, an idea of what she looks like. I'm like, oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> like, like, don't you have an ID system? Like she has an ID, like she has a photo ID from you guys. Like you had to have taken a picture, but like, it was just, it was like here, my kid is going to be with you eight hours a day you know, five days a week for so many weeks of the year. And you don't have an idea of what she looks like to like, know if she's in class or if she's wandering the halls or something like that, that to me is just insane. But so just to kind of give uh, people out there listening an idea, like, yeah, that's true. A lot of times, and I'm not digging on public schools or any other schools, but like there's a lot of kids out there and a lot of things going on. It's hard to keep track of everyone. So that is very true thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, finding, so, and this is probably when you've got like a first responder involved, but like finding children alone at hotels and motels, mm-hmm. but huge red flag. Right. Um, I mean, I don't even think kids like maybe older teens go to a hotel if with their girlfriend or something, but I mean, outside of like a pool party when we were younger, like you don't go to a hotel, right, much right. less alone. <laughs> um, so that's a big sign. Um, children traveling or referencing traveling, to other cities, um, especially based on their age, like distanced travel is a big red flag because they don't like, you don't do that. It's not age, um, appropriate, I guess, or common. Yeah. Um, and then definitely runaways. And I say runaways, like we know runaways happen, but on average, most runaways go home unless there's something serious, right? Um, so one of the big things when we talk about vulnerabilities is that traffickers know what runaways look like and they prey on them, mm. um, because they know real runaways have something else going on that makes them not go home. Um, so real runaways, not just like, Hey, I'm going to run away and they go to their friend's house for the night and then they go home the next day. Like, Hey mom, I'm hungry. Um, real runaways 
is actually a rather big sign, unfortunately. And then, um, again, just like a relative history of, um, being gone away, just missing an action, that kind of thing. Because the question is, well, where are they at? What, what's going on? Got it. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's definitely, it's all very, uh, you know, and you mentioned actually something, um, age appropriate that, that was, uh, that was a term that we actually learned quite a bit, uh, when we were doing foster care training and, uh, especially when it came to like, uh, sexual, uh, sex abuse, um, you know, there, there are certain things that kids are going to, to know based, you know, on certain age levels, you know, there are, there's obviously always like the one kid who's like gone out and read the dictionary whenever he's 10 and he knows a lot more than what he should. But, you know, mm-hmm. for the, for the most part, kids, you know, you, you kind of know where kids should be based on their age range. And so if you do have that 10 or 11 year old talking about things that like you won't even talk about with your wife and like that would seem like an obvious red flag like hey that's not right uh, another thing that they they told us about was um you know kids who like especially the younger kids you know there's a certain level of affection that kids will give to adults um you know after they warm up and everything like that you know maybe a hug or whatever like that but then there's like also like there's there's a point when it goes beyond um just the normal affection of like giving the hug or wanting to cuddle and watch a tv show or something like that and it goes beyond where um you know, they are starting to treat the the adult, let's say the foster parent in this case, as uh, sort of a romantic interest in this kid's like eight years old. And so, you know, like that should be a red flag, I would think, as well. So, like, um, I think you hit it right on the head when you said age appropriate, maybe life, like life situation appropriate um, sort of thing. I think a lot of this, honestly, can probably be boil down to like common sense. Like if I saw, you know, like a 10 year old with like three cell phones, I'm like, I'm going to be thinking that there's something going on with like, it's, it's common sense to, to say like, that's not right. Like either he's stolen these things or he's involved in something nefarious, something else nefarious. So, um, right. Yeah. I think everything, I mean, I, th- I think everything you gave, you know, those all very common sense and should be knowledgeable or, you know, people should know it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's still good, good, very good information because sometimes, uh, you know, we're looking for the, uh, you know, the white vans that pull up and, and pick up people. And we don't think about all these other signs that we can see. Um, so kind of. OK, so now that we have some of those ideas of what could be signs of someone who's being trafficked, um, I kind of have a, a, a two part question to kind of close us out for the night. And so the first part would be, obviously, if we suspect someone's in danger, what would we do? um, And, you know, what should we do in order to help them out? You know, should we, you know, like like with domestic violence people, should we talk to them? Should we involve the police or whatever? And following that, um, what something I've noticed, um, especially in this age of of, of social media, um, there seems to be a lot of uh, I don't know what to call it, maybe. over stranger danger alerts that you see like I, I feel like especially in my hometown my hometown groups all, you know hometown in Illinois uh, small town not a lot for people to do or talk about so every few weeks you know you'll see someone posting about you know there was a guy walking through Walmart and he stood behind you know this teenage daughter for a minute and then walked off and like oh is he going to abduct her right like so there's there's obviously these cases where people are maybe I don't know. It feels like overly cautious. And I, and I say that 
from my perspective, as I've walked through a mall with my daughter, who's 16 now, right? And obviously, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a white guy. <laughs> she's Guatemalan, so she's you know we look different. You can tell that we're not like related, even though I am her guardian, I'm her foster parent, and hopefully someday we'll be her adopted parent. People give me the eye, you know, and I can only I can only sit there because if I were in someone else's shoes, I'd be sitting there looking at the situation like this does not look right. Like, should I call the police on this person and say that you know he's doing something wrong with this teenage girl, right? So. So the two part two part question would be whether this would be this okay, how should we help out if we suspect that something's going on, and then how do we avoid maybe these uh, panics that people do sometimes? Mm. Um, let's tackle the latter. Let's talk about what is essentially bleed over from a whole other issue. Um, so you, it's interesting what we're what we're essentially talking about is like race issue, right? Mm. Um, we're getting into that, like bias, prejudice, racism, anti-racism type of conversation. And here's the kicker. So like you talk about you being a white guy and having a child who is, you know, basically anything other than white. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, it would be even worse if it was flipped. Mm. Um, because the reality is, is that men of color, non-white men are prejudged from that perspective with a child who is anything other. Right. Definitely. If the child is white, mm-hmm. like, you know, black dad, white kid could be even be a, a very light skinned mixed kid mm-hmm. could actually be their child even. And you've got the over response on average from who white people, right? Right. Probably a white woman. Um, and so being honest about like that particular situation, now we're not talking about trafficking anymore. Um, not that we shouldn't be cautious, shouldn't be aware and that kind of thing, but skin color is not the red flag. Sure. And so really we're talking about race and prejudice at that point, bleeding into an assumption or a myth of danger when it comes to men being with children who don't look like them could happen in your case is many times worse for men who are not white. Right, right, right. Um, in regards to that, you know, you start with education. Education is always um, a good first step. Um, knowing what trafficking is and what it isn't is important. And when you have somebody and there's, a, you know, there's some humility here. You know, if biases and prejudices are kind of a part of your default reaction. So if you're listening to this and you know that's a thing, you know that's a part of your upbringing, you know that's part of your gut reaction, you need to own that. And you need to work on that at the same time that you're learning about what trafficking really is. Mm-hmm. Um, trafficking just simply doesn't have anything to do with race as a starting point. That's just not what it's right. It's it's no different than the other. Equal opportunity abuser happens in every socioeconomic, ethnic, you know, background period. Um, and it can't just be spotted in that way. And, you know, if you're listening to this and wondering like, well, where, where do I get that kind of education? The sources are endless. Um, you've got programs locally alone that can probably point you in the right direction. 
or even train you potentially. They may have in-house um, training type of staff or volunteers. You can research online. You can read more. You can get involved in your community, get involved in organiz- uh, you know, community organizations, things like that. But there is a difference between being properly proactive and educated and just reacting based on your biases. Right. Um, so then getting into like, what's a good proper response? What do we do if we really think there's something going on there? This is a multifold answer, but it is really important to hear all of this multifold answer because we tend to think that there's like a one size fits all, like a one type of solution situation. Sure. And there's not Uh first off, if you're witnessing something, you're uncomfortable about a situation. Shoot. You might be literally watching some dude pull a young girl around a restaurant or something. And you've got all the bad feels, right? Number one, you should probably not get involved personally unless you really feel like you need to be the hero that day because you think it's going to save a kid's life. Sure. Um, but if you like are certain, like this is obviously a pimp, this is obviously a trafficker. These are obviously victims or a victim, but you don't know for certain that they are looking for help, ready to get away or anything along those lines. Don't get involved personally in that moment. It's incredibly dangerous. You might make it worse for the victim who's not ready to even leave yet. Um, certainly you're going to put yourself in harm's way, you know, almost undoubtedly. So unless you really feel like in the moment, it's a child, and if you don't, who knows what, right. um, just know that, like, that's the situation you're talking about. Um, I'll say this. So let's talk about 911 first, your local, uh, first responder. Um, if you are witnessing something that you think police need to respond to, then call 911 because you're watching it in the moment. You want a response to that very situation. Um, I would be discreet about it if that's effective. For instance, like you see something super sketchy, you know, this isn't okay. You want police to come and maybe check out, you know, run the plates and do whatever, blah, blah, blah. If you make a scene about it, they're probably going to leave. And then you don't know where they're going. If you discreetly call the police and they're eating a meal, you might've bought 30 minutes for police to get there and at least run some plates and do a a question, you know? Right. Um, so think about it in that way. Um, the bigger discussion is essentially one of two routes and it has to do with hotlines because we always hear about hotlines. Um, essentially when it comes to human trafficking, you have federal hotlines, which is what you typically hear about is, um, federal or state trafficking hotlines. Um, and the proper use of those hotlines is to report suspected activity to report suspected trafficking. And the reason we want to utilize them is because those agencies and that level of law enforcement is prepared for it. They have the resources, they have the staff numbers, the detective numbers, all of it. That's what they do. And so you think of it like trickle down resources. If you called 911, And we're like, hey, I think my neighbor down the street is, you know, running a trafficking ring out of their house. Mm -hmm. They might not be prepared for that at all. They might not have the training. 
They might not have the numbers, none of it to properly look into it. But if you call the federal number in that case, they're still going to work with local law enforcement, but they're going to start cross-referencing that report in their system with other reports, looking for similar victims, similar motives, similar traffickers. Um, And so when it comes to suspected activity and essentially turning in the trafficker in a way uh, for an investigation, you want to go with those federal hotlines. If on the other hand, you are looking to make a call or provide a phone number to a, uh, or I guess for a uh, survivor, somebody who you're working with, you're talking to, and they want help. They're looking for a way out. If they're like not in danger, they can actually flee or something along those lines. You don't need like police to come and kick in a door. That's what our local hotlines are for. And so um, we talk all the time about the fact that like Illinois, for instance, has 50 plus some um, domestic violence programs. Wow. And all of us are ready for that victim. So if somebody is in trouble in our five county area, they can call our hotline if they're ready for help and say like, hey, here's my deal. Here's what's going on. Can I get help? And immediately we're like, yes, come to such and such address. The police can escort you if need be. We've got an emergency shelter for you to stay in. We've got counselors ready to talk to you. We've got group services. We've got this. We've got that. That's what you want to remember. And a lot of people don't realize that. So victim services, think of local victim service agencies. Call those hotlines. Um, When somebody's really looking for help, reporting suspected abuse, go with that federal hotline. Go all the way up to the top of the chain. Let them trickle down and, and spread out their resources and all that. Um, and 911 is for those emergencies. Like, hey, I am watching this explode right in front of me, and you got to get here right now. Wow. That's that's definitely um, a lot to think about, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't have the, the numbers in front of me, but I, uh, whenever I post this up, I will include um, some hotline numbers just for people to maybe or even websites for people to, to go ahead and, and take a look at. So, um, yeah. So, so Jared, thank you so much for, you know, spending almost the last two hours, uh, talking about these things. Uh, I know this is something that you're, you're very passionate about that you, uh, you're very good at, honestly, like just, I could listen for another two hours to be quite honest. So if I'm ever in Illinois and you're doing one of those four hour trainings, maybe I'll pop on by and, <laughs> and listen. Um, but you know, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share either on, um, you know, the trafficking aspect or the domestic violence aspect or anything else? You know, just generally speaking, um, I guess let me say this. If you're a survivor and you're listening to this, there are people out there who want to help you. There are options. Um, you are not in this alone. Um, you're, you're, you're in good company, which is a really weird way to put that, but there are lots of people in your shoes who know what you're going through. You're not alone. Um, and there are people out there who want to help you. So reach out. Don't be afraid. You do deserve better. Um, but if you're listening to this and you're just wanting to make a difference, that's my encouragement. Um, get to know what you can do locally. Look for those trainings. Look for those agencies to um, be able to reference, to volunteer with. 
uh, there is a way to end this abuse and this demand, right? We want to end the violence in our communities and you can be a part of that. You don't have to be a law enforcement officer or some superhero. You can make those little differences and that's, that's a big part of it. All right. Well, thank you for that. So everyone, this was my interview with my good friend, Jaybo Jared from Decatur, Illinois. Well, currently living in Decatur, Illinois from Quad Cities, Illinois. I got to throw out your, your, your hoods there. Uh, <laughs> uh, good friend of mine, known for a long time, really good guy. And actually, uh, I wasn't going to say anything, but uh, I, I, I feel that you being in this line of work is definitely a God thing. And I say that because you won't remember, you probably won't remember this, but uh, whenever we were both at uh, Western and uh, I came to CSC, I was actually in a very bad place in my life, very depressed and very like, like quite honestly, I was like suicidal. And um, you were one of the first people that I met and you and Katie both, you know, welcomed me into your guys' small group and welcomed me into that community. And really that's where I found Christ. So, you know, that you are someone I, I really look up to and someone I can say, you are definitely there when God needs you to be there to, to help people through those crisis moments in their lives. So I think this is definitely a good fit for you to be uh, doing what you're doing. Definitely a lot better than uh, working in Nashville, although I'm sure that was exciting working in the music business and everything. But I'm grateful that there are people like you uh, that are working in this field and grateful for even, you know, Katie, I know that she used to be a first responder. Um, so grateful for you both and, uh, you know, thank you for doing what you do. And, you know, we look forward to hearing more from you guys in the future as you, as you continue to do this. And, you know, hopefully maybe I'll be able to have you on again in the future and we can talk about, I don't know, something better, <laughs> something a little less depressing. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm down. All right. Um, man, thank you so much. I didn't know that. So like I got goosebumps and my jaws on the floor over here, man. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up another episode of reform everything. I just want to say another thank you to Jared. Uh, Jaybo, thank you so much for being here tonight and for sharing your information with us. I hope that others that are listening to this will get something out of it and will share the information with their friends, their family, their coworkers, uh, so that way all of us together can you know, start fighting against domestic violence, uh, against trafficking, whether it's sexual or labor-based or something else like that. Uh, yeah, so we can all produce a safer community for our, you know, not only ourselves, but our, our, our spouses, our friends, our family members, our kids, grandkids, so on and so forth. So again, thank you, Jaybo. And uh, just as a special thanks to you, Jaybo, we're going to play this song. This will be reminiscent of, I don't know, say spring break 2007, 2008, somewhere around that time, going down to the Lake of the Ozarks in your, uh, your car with the awesome sound system. So yeah, we're going to close out with a one of the greatest songs from one of the greatest Christian hip-hop groups ever, Grits. Back on up, back on up, oh yeah, back on up. Back on, back on up, back on up, back on up.